Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining me for the very first episode of Mixed Conspiracies, a podcast about all types of conspiracies, ranging from true crime to the deepest internet theories, no matter how absurd. My name is Courtney Beasley, and I will be your host on the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please feel free to leave a comment or give us a review. But please keep in mind while listening that these are all theories, so none of them have been confirmed unless otherwise stated, and that this show is made just for fun. And with that, let's head on to our first episode, and thanks again for joining us. For our first episode, I wanted to do something I was familiar with and had a connection to. So today, we'll be traveling to the town of Roswell, New Mexico. I wanted to adventure here because I actually grew up in Taos, New Mexico, which is about four and a half hours away, but I traveled to Roswell with family whenever I was in elementary school. The trip was so fun, and it's one of my best childhood memories, but all of the aliens stuck out to me because of how the entire town based their legacy off this one incident like 70 years ago. Seriously, the entire town is a gift shop for Area 51. Even the McDonald's has a UFO in its play place. It's a trip and a half, especially when you're only 10 years old. To set the tone, back in 1947, the year that this occurred, the United States and many other countries were in the middle of an obsession with flying saucers, or as we now call them, UFOs. This stands for Unidentified Flying Object, just in case you were living under a rock or something. There were over 300 cases of people reporting strange objects in the sky that appeared to be piloted by unearthly creatures. After leaving World War II, American media flooded the news with these incidents based off its outlandish nature, because that's what drew people. And drew it did, as Roswell is still one of our culture's biggest alien hotspots. But back on June 14, 1947, it wasn't a phenomenon yet. That day was just a regular day for a foreman named William Brazel. He was working on the Foster Homestead, about 30 miles north for Roswell. While he was going about his day, he happened to come across a large pile. Upon taking a closer look, he saw the pile consisted of rubber strips, tinfoil, a type of tough paper he hadn't seen before, and sticks. At the time, he didn't really think much of it. However, he returned to the Foster Homestead on July 4th, and his wife and their son and daughter gathered up the material after seeing news reports of what people called flying saucers and immediately gaining suspicion. He called the Chavez County Sheriff and informed him he had possibly found a flying disc. The Sheriff, George Wilcox, reported William's discovery to the RAAF, also known as Roswell Army Airfield, which was a closed United States Air Force base about three miles away from the business district of town. The RAAF dispatched Major Jesse Marcel and Counterintelligence Corps Officer Captain Sheridan Cavitt to drive out to the Foster Ranch and inspect the debris. When it was completely gathered, the evidence was about 3 feet long and about 7 to 8 inches thick, while the rubber made a bundle about 18 to 20 inches long and about 8 inches thick. In all, probably only weighed about 5 pounds. To put this in perspective, This is the weight of a two-liter bottle of soda. Yep, you heard that right, a two-liter. All of the spectacle over that little of a discovery. There was also no metal found in the surrounding areas of the discovery on the ranch, which might have been used for an engine, 
and no sign of any propellers, although at least one paper fin had been glued on to some of the tinfoil. With this evidence, on July 8th, the Roswell Daily Record published the headline stating, quote, The RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell, end quote, which had an article attached that read that the intelligence office of the 509th Bombardment Group at the Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon that the field had come into possession of a flying saucer. But, the very same day, the Air Force strangely changes their story. General Roger W. Ramey ordered that the crash site remains be brought to him in Fort Worth, Texas, for his own personal inspection. Ramey and members of his staff had now decided that this debris was pieces of a weather balloon, and issued an immediate press release correcting the original article. Photos were even taken of Marcel with the debris, as if he's a puppy getting his nose rubbed in his own shit. Like as if he's saying, Are you fucking kidding me? You really think that this is a saucer? Look at the pictures. Look at the evidence. You know goddamn well that's nothing. But the very next day after these pictures were posted, the Daily Record posted a new headline, quote, Harassed rancher who located saucer. Sorry he told about it. End quote in which he describes the debris, which, as we discussed earlier, was mainly just sticks, rubber, and paper. But when the new weather balloon theory is basically confirmed by the key witnesses in this case, the world basically forgot about the incident. But fast forward 30 years later, when it recaptured the attention of UFO researcher Stanton Friedman in 1978, who then interviewed the now-retired Officer Marcel, the original officer on the scene, he re-blew this case open when he admitted that even after all these years, he still believed the wreckage was not that of a weather balloon. He spoke of what he'd seen at the site. Begin quote. It felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the thing that got me was that you couldn't bend it. You couldn't dent it. Even a sledgehammer would just bounce off of it. I knew that I'd never seen anything like that before. It was not anything from this earth, that I'm quite sure of. Being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in aircraft and air travel. This was nothing like that. It could not have been." End quote. After this new interview with Marcel, Friedman then took it upon himself to interview multiple others involved, from military to civilians and felt confident to announce that there had been a major cover-up in this investigation. Or, to quote the man himself, a cosmic Watergate. He believed the cover-up included information from the crash site, materials, the spacecraft itself, and possibly even alien bodies found at the scene. Now, after this, this is where the story starts to stray. At this point, the conspiracy branches into two different scenarios of what took place. To do a quick run, one says that everything the government says is real, the other doesn't. The first theory is that the government told the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and how dare you say otherwise, it's totally a weather balloon. And most of the evidence backs this theory up. But this theory isn't that concrete, because the military contradicted itself in 1994, when the US Air Force stated that there was a cover-up. But it wasn't a cover-up concerning aliens like we're thinking. The confidential file stated that it was indeed the remains of a weather balloon, but not any regular weather balloon. It was a balloon used in the top-secret experiment of Project Mogul. 
This balloon's primary purpose was not to predict the weather, but rather to study long-distance sound waves generated by atomic bomb tests. This was created by Dr. Maurice Ewing at Columbia University, who basically figured that since microphones could detect sound waves produced by explosions, an airborne monitoring system could do the same. So basically, they admitted it was a cover-up, but not in that way. Kinda like, oh look over here, but don't look over here, look there! These balloons were tested all over the U.S., and one of the locations was over New Mexico in the summer of 1947. The balloons were usually about 650 feet long and had tails that had sensory equipment, which, by looking at the pictures, I could definitely see how it could be mistaken for a UFO. Since this is an audio media and you can't see, I'll tell you, it's basically a huge white sphere. Pretty creepy looking. I'd definitely freak out if I saw one outside. In February of 1994, per the request of the New Mexico State Senator, the U.S. General Accounting Office had to locate all of the government records relating to the Roswell incident and determine if they were handled properly. This report was published in 1995 by the U.S. Air Force, and it was even titled, quote, The Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, end quote. The findings supported the Project Mogul theory and found no evidence that aliens or alien bodies were involved and that the original press release was simply, to quote, an overreaction. And then in 1997, they released yet another report titled, quote, The Roswell Report, Case Closed, end quote, in which they offered a possible explanation for claims about the alien bodies. They said that in the mid-1950s, the government was testing the ability of parachutes and were dropping human-like dummies over New Mexico. The dummies were made of latex and plastic, and it could be mistaken for alien bodies by civilians watching. But if this happened in the mid-1950s, how could it possibly explain the Roswell incident, which happened 10 years prior? Oh, don't worry. They have an answer for that, too. Colonel John Hayes from the Air Force claims that during the recounting of events, Decades later, things tend to become a little compressed. Yep, you heard that right. That's basically a fancy way of saying, you guys got your timelines confused. The military really said this. This is real. They actually believe all these witnesses who were just super confused about one of the most terrifying things they've probably ever seen in their life. But even if we pacified this theory, that doesn't explain why people describe the bodies as little, as in four foot or less, but these dummies were six feet tall. It's not clear how this could also be a mix-up, but that isn't even the craziest thing about this. Upon requesting the files from the Roswell Air Force Base from the year 1947, when the incident occurred, it was discovered that all records from January to October of 1947 were destroyed. It's even more intense to discover that the person or organization that destroyed these files had done it with no proof of any authority to do so. So, these records just happen to disappear when more and more questions start to pop up. Are you guys seeing this too? How suspicious can the government get? To end the first theory, this brings us to the second one. The theory that a massive cover-up did occur, and that there was alien life found that summer day. This is the theory that I personally lean to, but... Before we get too deep, this is all based off of interviews with people who claim to have eyewitness testimony of the incident. There is estimated to be about 600 witnesses, from civilian to high-level military. 
Some of the details vary from person to person, so I'll just ask you this question to start. If 600 people were witnesses to a murder, or any type of crime, and every single one gave a similar account, would you believe them? 600 people all saying the same thing. Whenever the incident first occurred, Brazel was telling anybody and everybody what he had seen, including that he even saw alien bodies at the scene. But then, when the Air Force ran the retraction, Brazel immediately shuts up. Brazel's friends and family even say that he was detained by the military, so is it really so far off that think he was told to shut up? He was even seen afterwards with a new pickup truck and left ranching to start a business in another small New Mexican town. All the signs point to him being paid to just keep quiet and forget what he saw and get the hell out of Dodge. The military also reportedly threatened the locals to keep quiet and ransacked homes for remaining crash site materials. This is corroborated by the foster daughter of Colonel Hunter G. Penn of the U.S. Air Force, who told his daughter he was tasked with the information blackout with a focus on the little bodies. He was even authorized to use physical force and weapons if necessary. To me, you don't authorize that for no reason. This is further confirmed when Colonel Blanchard, who issued the original press release about the disc, mysteriously went on leave right afterward. According to Lieutenant Colonel Joe Briley, this leave was actually a cover-up to coordinate a cleanup of the crash site. So basically, the government was kind of like a frustrated parent. Like, why'd you have to go and open your mouth? Just, just leave. We'll, we'll clean your mess up. But the key is the photo mentioned earlier, when they forced Marcel to pose with the items he had misidentified as a UFO. A sealed statement, which was supposedly written by Lieutenant Walter Hott, a public information officer of the Air Force, and it was only to be opened after his death, claimed that the photo taken was a hoax. Hott stated that the actual crash materials were substituted with weather balloon materials, and then photographed with Marcel a fact that upset Marcel pretty bad. To further drive this home, a man named Ben Games was a personal pilot to Major General Lawrence Craig, the chief of the engineering division at Wright Field, which was the Air Force base commonly thought to be where the UFO and aliens were transported and housed. According to Games, he flew Craig to Roswell to examine the crash materials, and after a few hours, he then flew the general directly to D.C. to meet with President Truman. And then a few months later, he became the Air Force Chief Director of R&D, and possibly influenced by what he saw at Roswell, created Project Sign, the first official investigation of UFOs by the U.S. Air Force. Now that we have established the timelines and what was reported to have happened, let's go over some of the outstanding facts in this theory. All of the eyewitness testimonies on the alien bodies were consistent. They stated three and a half to four feet high, big heads, large eyes, only holes for a nose, and slits for a mouth. If you really think about it, this is possibly where the image of an alien came from. Military officials also have claimed to hear secondhand information of the bodies, even seeing them themselves. To name a few, Lieutenant Walter Hott, Brigadier General R3 Exxon, and Tech Sergeant Herschel Griss. And then we move on to the actual spacecraft itself. Sergeant William C. Ennis was stationed in one of the primary receiving hangars for the debris called Hangar P3. 
For years and years, Annis denied the crash, writing it off as a weather balloon just like everyone else in the government did. Until 2008, when he changed his tune. He was quoted as saying, quote, It was a spaceship. After all of these years, I still don't know how that ship flew. There was no engine. Before I go, I'd like to know. End quote. There is nothing to say what made him finally change his story, but sometimes you just can't keep secrets anymore the older you get. So let's give this one last little home run. For the sake of argument, let's just assume the military is telling the truth, and the crash was a Project Mogul weather balloon. That does not change that the debris recovered was rubber strips, tinfoil, a rather tough paper, and sticks. The military has never said that Brazel's description was inaccurate, and it can even be seen in the photos taken of the debris. So we can assume that these were in fact the items found at the site, and forget about the allure of the seemingly high-tech Project Mogul balloons. With that thought, let's return to Jesse Marcel, the one who evaluated the crash site. He was quoted as saying he is familiar with all materials used in aircraft and air travel, and was even a graduate from the Army's Air Force Training Command in radar technology. How could this guy, an expert in aircraft, mistake sticks and tinfoil for part of an alien spaceship? The answer lies in a quote from the man himself. Begin quote. All I could do was keep my mouth shut, and General Ramey was the one who told the newsmen what it was, and then to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon, but we both knew differently, end quote. But in the end, no physical evidence of extraterrestrials or their technology has ever been found, but archaeological digs took place on the ranch, and even though they found nothing, they did find that there had indeed been a crash there. So, you've heard both sides. It's easy to see both perspectives. I personally find a few things hard to dispute, like 600 people all having the same memories, down to little details, or even the government trying to say that this was all a memory mix-up. But it comes down to you. What do you think? Was Boswell a result of a UFO crash, or was it just a weather balloon? And that's for you to decide and ponder on. Until next time on Mixed Conspiracy. And thanks for listening.